So the Discipleship Congress has ended, but this is the beginning of our journey to disciple Singapore. And it takes all of us to play our part. And in the meantime, before we get to the time where we can physically gather and, and go places and reach and worship together as a church, there's a few things that I feel I need to update the church so that you, you are clear about what's going on uh, in regards to worship. First of all is that You've heard that there's, the government's allowing 50 to 100 people to gather together at church. That is correct. And then the question comes, why isn't ASDAC resuming service? So let me share with you a few details that you won't read about in the news. First of all, if we were to gather physically together for worship, we would not be able to have live singing. So that's a criteria that we are thinking through and considering that the team that is here leading worship during the live service, if we allow people to come back into the building, they can't do it anymore. They'll be pre-recorded. So even if you come to church, you can't sing. You're not allowed to sing when you're gathered together and you'll be watching the same way you're watching at home a video of the guys leading worship. So that's number one consideration we are thinking through. Secondly, for us to fulfill the requirements of having 50 people in ASDAC, there needs to be enough space to allow everyone to gather together. And I've done multiple counts and uh, I, I still don't think that we can comfortably, safely accommodate 50 people on top of the worship team, which will make the space about 60 to 65 people being present at one point in time. So do understand that we are really thinking this through. We really want to resume service, but right now, we still don't think this space, the ASDAC Auditorium, can handle 50 individuals safely with the spacing that's required. Then the third consideration is that you're not allowed to interact. And you know, I understand how you're feeling and I'm the same that if you don't see each other for six months and you come back together, you want to interact. So if you just come, show up at about 11.15, 11.30, listen, I watch a video on live worship and then listen to me talk live. I can speak live with a face shield. You're not allowed to talk to each other. You're not allowed to sing and then you're asked to go home and leave the premise. I don't think it's very meaningful. I don't think it's very meaningful for us to gather in that way. So we're still praying and thinking it through. But last and most important, we still want to protect the ASDAC family. I don't want people to commute to church and in the process of that, risk being exposed to the coronavirus. I, of course, right now in the news, it's good news because the daily community infection has gone down to single digits. So we are observing, we are praying through it, and we are looking at, if there's a possibility, we'll start to resume a little bit, um, not full 50, maybe 20, maybe 30, and maybe even 40 in October. But we're not sure yet. The numbers have to continue to be this slow, and also we need uh, approval from the government for us to do so. But before that, there's some stuff that we do want to do. We know that some of you have requested for baptism, and, and we haven't been able to do that. So we've worked with the government agencies. Different churches have sub uh, put in different proposals, and we found a way to do it. So we will be conducting a few of the requested baptism that's been since January, and we're going to have it, and, uh, but it's not going to be live. We still can't have it live. We're going to have those baptism, and then we're going to record the video of what we do, and then we're going to play it during worship service. But we do want to let those who've really been waiting for your baptism to have it done. 
And for the others who, who actually during this time have gone through Bible study and you are thinking of baptism, let me know. We'll make it happen. And it'll be a really special and a different baptism that you remember that I was baptized during the pandemic. I don't know, man. That's an interesting memory to have. Um, so, yep. So we're looking at that. We're looking to bring back part of the, the, the church normal physical life. But at the same time, as I shared last week, I'm excited that we're all dispersed around Singapore. Because now church, now ASDAQ, is not just at 798 Thompson Road. Church is everywhere in Singapore, wherever our ASDAQ family is. The, the, the thing is, you know, you don't have to just stay in your home with your own family members. When it's safe, when you, you can think of ways to ensure uh, everyone's okay, invite your friends, invite your neighbours. God put you in your area of influence, in your exact address, not by accident, but intentionally. You know, Singapore's not very big. And I feel sad that we still commute to church. And church can't be just where we are. We should have the SDAC presence all over Singapore, and you can be a part of that if you choose to. And that's what discipleship is about. Well, we're going back into our series on Matthew 5. In fact, the whole of Matthew, we're going to be going through it, but we're talking about the kingdom of God. You notice that the, the logo and the colors that is shown is not, I'm not like pushing for any political party or anything. It just happened that I picked this and then I looked at it and I realized that it does resemble some things. I'm not going to mention it, but it's not. I'm not. There's no agenda. It just happened that the slides I chose happened to be this. Today I'm talking about culture shock. I'm going to tell you about an experience. For those of you who had a, a sibling that you, you shared a room with, you will understand. Or for those of you who studied and stayed in a dorm, you have this experience when you have a, a roommate, you know. Not, not just a housemate, but a, a roommate. So I grew up with my little brother sharing a room with me. We didn't have a lot of that problem because we didn't have technology that is so uh, available back then. But I did have housemates and then roommates for a little while. So one thing that, that you know, is really difficult is when your roommate and you are different creatures. What do I mean by that is that one of you is a night owl and the other one likes to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning. You have so different lifestyle. One of you go to bed when the sun is rising the next day and the other one goes to bed when the sun sets for the day. You know, you have just a different time zone that you live within and, and then there is this problem of having gadgets. Gadgets and computers that causes what people call light pollution. Light pollution. And you know the worst thing is if you have somebody who sleeps early, goes to bed at 7 p.m., and then a guy who goes to bed at 1 or 2 a.m., the in-between time, you can't expect the other guy to not do anything. The fact that he goes to bed later is because he's doing something. Uh, oftentimes playing computer games or being on his phone or just decided to light up his LED agape light beside the bed. No, that's not the actual photo, but it's very similar. And so what, what that does is, is it's really annoying because the, the guy who goes to bed earlier, like the light turns on and he's like, oh, this light is in my face. And then he endures it, he's upset about it. And then finally the other guy goes to bed and then you wake up at 4 a.m. while he just gone to bed for about two, three hours, you turn on the light. And so this light can become this really annoying in your eye thing and it may, it may throw people off. But that's how, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about more about that in Excel, but that's how light can be both a blessing and a curse. We've, we've read that in the news and in different research that our phone, our phone emits a blue light that 
is a blessing if you want to wake up. You know, it keeps you awake. But if you want to sleep, that blue light can be very, very annoying and it prevents your body system from going to bed. Why am I talking about that? Because I think that as Christians, we are called to be light, but we have to decide what kind of light we are to be and how this light functions. You know, during the World War II, um, in Singapore and around Southeast Asia, uh, the Japanese occupied this area for three years, uh, for Singapore at least, for, for, for a little bit more than three years. And during the time, they captured a lot of the soldiers who were based here. These are prisoners of wars. And there's a lot of stories recorded because a lot of them e eventually survived and they, they interviewed them and asked them about what life was like during this time. You can imagine, during the war, a lot of people die. And imagine if you are, you know, opposite, you're of the opposite forces and then you are captured by your enemy. What would they do to you? Naturally, they'll torture you. They're going to get information from you. They're trying to break your spirit. They don't want you to regain your health and go back and fight against them after that. So, but then a lot of them uh, that the Japanese captured, a lot of the soldiers that the Japanese captured survived. And the reporters were very interested as to what happened, why, how, how did you survive through such a crazy time? It's not even like a short period of time, it's three years. And this is what they said. It says, one crucial means of survival in the camp was to form strong bonds with fellow prisoners. Close friendship were a lifeline to Japanese captives. Having a small group of three to four mates was essential. They share food and workload and nurse one another, each other, when sick. So the secret to their survival during this really, really difficult time was actually having a community, not a big community, but of three to four mates that they can hang on and trust. Do you, do you have those people in your life? It doesn't, those people don't necessarily have to be your family members. Do you have those people in your spiritual life, in your Christian walk with God? Are they present? And so they went back and uh, this is them, uh, some of them, not everyone in the photo, of course, but they actually have a reunion many, many, many years later. And you know what? Many of them, many of them who've gone through this torture live to a 90 years old and beyond. The oldest among them lived to about 107 years old. A lot of them survived, and not only survived, they thrived. Because you know what happened? The friendship and the relationship that they formed during the camps carried on throughout their life. They continued to keep in touch and care for one another. Once a year, they'll gather together and they'll check on how each other's going. They continue to take care of one another. You can imagine a time of war that... You feel alone and there's nobody taking care of you and then you fall sick and a mate comes and, and nurse you back to health. And with the very little food that they have, they'll share it with you. This kind of friendship, this kind of bond will take you through an entire lifetime. And that's what it did for them. In fact, it, 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 it generated actual health benefit for them. We are going through a war. We are going through a time that's called the pandemic. Not everyone can say that they lived through a pandemic. Not everyone. I think not, nobody in Singapore except for our generation can say they've lived through a circuit breaker. We're the only one who, be, who was locked at home. Of course, my grandparents went through the curfew, the bombing, but, but it was different. Like, we are living in a time where the enemy, you don't even know when he's coming. 
or who's, how it's going to hit you. And we've been locked in the house, and we've gone through a little period where it's, it's really stressful. People say, it's no big deal, man. It's, it's not even like an actual war. But I tell you, the physical, emotional, social impact it has had on some people is more than you can imagine. Imagine if you are alone during this time. No family. No friends. No idea when it's going to finish. No idea what's going to happen next. It's stressful. It's rough. It's tough. And the scripture tells us that at this time is where you will need a community. And in fact, the church has been called to lead to be that community. And today I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, and the two verses there is, uh, are two verses that we are not exactly comfortable with, but it's, it's written in the scripture. It is real. It is true. It is what God says will happen to us. So let us read Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 to 12. If you turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 10 to verse 12. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It, is, it sounds very much like for those who are poor in spirit in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on mine account. Whose account? Jesus' account. You know, Jesus is saying that if you live as though you belong to my kingdom, if you live as though you're a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, the way you live, the way you live will cause others to really question what you're doing. And the Bible goes on and, and, and doesn't mince words. It says that you will even cause persecution. In fact, that's what happened to the prisoner of war that was locked up in the Japanese camps. Because they were supporting each other, they were caring for each other, they are providing for each other, the Japanese soldiers who were guarding was not happy. Because that, that idea in the camp is to break you down, to torture you, to make you sick. And, and, and the fact that you are, you're, you're healthy, you're surviving, goes against their plan. And because of that, a lot of them got more severe punishment, punishing and punishment. And some of them, five of them, would have only portions of food for two. So, Because the Japanese soldiers were trying to see, what can I do to break this bond? They even tried to get them to tell tale on one another. And for those who report on each other, they'll give them more food. But it didn't work. It didn't work because they, they were committed to love. They committed to care for one another. And despite the efforts by the enemy, they would not give up their stand and their way of living, even though persecution came. You know, Jesus talks about a group of people who's going to live differently before he comes. It's not because we're doing something that, will, that will, is intentionally hurting others. If that's the case, then we deserve to be persecuted. We deserve to be attacked. But it says it's because this group of people is living so differently, not in a bad way, but in a biblical way, it causes the surrounding people to be uncomfortable. It's a little bit like the lights you turn on when your roommate is asleep. It, it just suddenly causes a glare, and it, the reaction is always, the initial reaction is, is not pleasant. It, it, they won't like it. And because the group of people who are called to follow Jesus are called to be light, the way they live will shine out. And people looking at them will not be, comf will not be comfortable with what they're doing. And human being humans, whenever we meet a situation that we're uncomfortable, we attack it. 
we attack it. I'm not saying Christians should ask for persecution. I'm not, I'm not saying that Christians should look for trouble, right? Don't get me wrong. Right? Pastor James says, you know, we should go look for persecution. You know, only when we are persecuted, then we are his people. But I'm saying that it will happen if you live according to the scripture because you are different. It's not a good or bad thing, you know, but it's just natural. You are living in a way that God has asked His followers to live, and in that way, it challenges the culture norm around you, and it's going to be different, and it's going to cause some opinions. It's going to cause some problems. Not because the, persecu- the persecution may be different. It may not even be a physical attack. But it could be verbal attack. And in today, in the social media world, it could be comments of ridicule, of people just putting down you or canceling you in the cancel culture just because of how you live your life. But would that drive you to give up your way of living? Something to think about. First of all, is the way you live different? Not for the sake of being different, but just because you're trying to be faithful to the Scripture. It's so different that the world will start to look at you and go, hmm, why are you living this way? You know, especially the Adventists, the way we live our life is way ahead of our time. Hundreds of years ago, 200 years ago, when we start living in a way that we live, as revealed by the scripture, as insights and foresights about how people should live, we were so different that the world reacted strongly against us. But you know what the scary thing is? As I study, do my study, and part of my study is analyzing the culture that currently exists in the world. And as I analyze the cultural trend of how it's moved, you know the current culture, in a lot of ways, correspond to what God called the Adventists to live hundreds of years ago. Not hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years ago. That the norm now, which was ridiculed a hundred years ago, is now the norm. And the Adventist was called to be forebearers, pioneers of this way of living. That today, if you look at the Adventist, they're like, wow, this is cool. You know, the, the very idea of keeping the Sabbath as a day of rest has become such a thing in the Christian, and mind you, the non-Christian world. In the corporate world, they're, they're pushing for the idea of a sabbatical, of taking a Sabbath to rest, because that's how humans need to function. Guess what? God has been asking the church, to promote that idea because God knows that's how He designed us to live. The other reason why the church will be confronted, will be attacked, is because if we follow the Scripture's way of living, to, to, to elevate being poor in spirit, to take care of the poor, take care of the needy, to elevate those who ha- take care of the hungering and the th- thirsting, to take care of those who, who, to be merciful to those who are not really merciful to us, to live in a way where we're asked to be pure in our hearts, in our motives, in our our way of living and thinking, it it makes the world uncomfortable because it feels like we're judging them. Because when you're different, it feels like you're making those who are not the same as you wrong. That's not our idea. That's not our motive. That's not what we're trying to do. But the fact that because you're unique will cause people to react. And that is a part of what God says in the scripture will happen to his followers. So don't be surprised when it happens to you. Don't be like, God, you've forsaken me because I'm following you. No, 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 no. God has told you that you will be persecuted because guess what? They persecuted him, Jesus Christ, when he was on earth. Now, this is the map of, uh, of old Singapore, right? This is a very old map. If you look at it, it's mostly 
green. Uh, you know, there's, there's some part where you know they have a little bit of a, a development. There's the early days where they start to develop and open up Singapore, but you can see it's still heavily based upon the southern part where the boats, all that comes in, and that's where most people live. Uh, a lot of them still very green and untouched. Um, the Changi Airport side, if you look clear at what the map states, you know, the airport's not really functioning. Uh, it's, it's a really old map. It's a really old map. So what I want to tell you about is that when, when we first came, see, most Singaporeans, not all, most Singaporeans are immigrants. Immigrants, right? We, uh, my grandfather came to Singapore from southern China uh, because southern China was at war and there was no food, no food, nothing to do. He came here to do business, to earn money, to send money home. All right, that's why he came. And the same with many of my friends and my relatives, they all came down to Singapore. Uh, they were all immigrants. And one of the things about immigrants is that we are different. We bring about our cultural uh, habits and uh, our, our way of living. And you know, when in the early days, I used to hear my grandparents tell me stories about how, because we are Hakka, right? The Hakka people will hang out with the Teochew people, but we don't like the Hokkien people. Uh, I love everybody, right? I'm just trying, not trying to be biased. And then the Cantonese people will side with the, the you know, like there's all these clans, you know, the Chinese, we just hate each other. I don't know, we're all Chinese, we hate each other. Um, then, then that's only layer one. Then the Chinese and the Malays and the Indians and the British hated each other also. So that's why you have, you know, today we don't, it's not as obvious as anymore, but that's why we have Chinatown, Little India, Geelang Surai, and then uh, most of the British live downtown, right, where Raffles Place is. You know, so, so there's a lot of like, we separate ourselves because we're so different. But you know what, actually, every group had something of uh, good things to, to bring to the country. Everybody contributed something. In fact, when we were early days, there are a lot of uh, businesses that are very unique. Each culture will run a certain specific business because that's, that's what they know. You know, I'm really thankful. I'm really thankful I was born in Singapore because I have friends who was not born in Singapore and you know what? They don't know what spiciness is. They're Chinese, but because they, they grew up in a culture where there's no chili. And I'm like, your life is sad. You know, you're, they, and they say, you are always asking for chili. I'm like, because it's part of life. And they're like, no, it's not part of it because we are born in Singapore. We grew up with Malay food, Indian food. Like, I have friends who are like, how do you know so much about the other food? I'm like, because I grew up eating it. And they're like, really? I'm like, yes. That's a blessing. You know, every culture brings something into this culture and, and then we all understand each other better and then we all grow together. But it's a difficult process. It's a difficult process. When you seek to understand others, it's a difficult process. And as Christians, we need to bring about our uniqueness and not be ashamed of it because the world needs our contribution. Initially, it will be difficult. Initially, it will be unpleasant. Initially, it will cause some discomfort. But you know, as you go further down, as you go further down, people will start to appreciate what you're contributing. The Christians are called to be lights, not because we're trying to blind people, but because the road is dark and we need to shine upon the path so people won't fall and trip. So if the Christians shy away from our way of living, we're depriving the world from seeing more clearly what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. In John 15, 19, if you would turn to me, in John, it's on the screen, but if you want, I'd like you to turn with me. In John 15:19, it says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Oh, we don't like this verse. We don't like to be hated. 
But the scripture tells us clearly it will happen. It will happen. But then it's a necessary step. Not that we want to be hated, but to cause discomfort because then we tell people that their way of living is not normal. It's not what God intended for them to do. It's not how their life should be. I have a friend who is a, a missionary. And when he first went to where he was sent to, I will not tell you the exact location uh, because of sensitivity, uh, he was tasked to, to teach them how to read. Because if you need to understand God, you need to understand the scripture. And for them, they didn't have any words. I told you about a little bit of his story before. And so well, part of his job was to get the spoken language to become a written language. You know, so I say this guy who gave this whole tribe words. And so with the help of a translator who doesn't even speak the language but speak a dialect of a similar language, they worked and started to write and, and put letters to what they were speaking. It was an awful process because for the tribe, they're like, why is this necessary? Why do we have to read? We didn't have to read for, for years, for decades. Why do we now need to read? But for him, he's like, no, 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 it's important. Trust me, trust the process. The chief of the tribe says, sure, okay, but I'm not going to be involved. i got no time for this. So he sent a young kid, a really young kid, to, to, to help out with the project. And, and so the young kid, you know, feel like, oh, man, it's a burdensome thing. It's, a, it's a, the thing I have to do because the chief asked me to do it. And every day he would show up at my friend's missionary place. And, and, and with the help of their translator, they would try to scribe the words. You think it would take months. It took my friend about one and a half year of daily scribing and trying to understand and learning, you know, and, and it's a really difficult process. And the kid in the end was so frustrated, he said, why am I here? Why am I here? But then eventually they got the first written Bible for the tribe in their own language. So my friend gave them their written Bible. Amazing experience. And then the, the kid realized because he was spending that one year in this uncomfortable, confrontational situation, Guess who was the first literate person in the, in the whole tribe? That little kid. And from then on, the little kid became the assistant teacher to my friend who was teaching the entire tribe words, written words. And from that, because he was teaching them words, you know what happened to this little kid? He was, I think, maybe 13 or 14 years old. By the end of him teaching the language to his tribe, he memorized the entire Bible, written Bible in his own language. What a blessing. And because of that, he was able to share. He, he was converted because as he memorized the word, he was touched by the story, he was touched by the scriptures, touched by the Holy Spirit. He was converted. He, he became the first baptism in that tribe. And from then on, he became an evangelist to the tribe. And today, not, not today, today, but recently when I checked my friend, yeah, he's still there. He's converting the tribe and the, the neighboring tribes and the tribes around the area. He became the first evangelist. So we're called to confront, and we may start in a very uncomfortable situation. But you know, as Christians, are we looking for the absence of problems and challenges? Is that how we're living our Christian life? We just want God to bless us, to, to give our life a, a smooth uh, sailing? Uh, is that all we're looking for? That we have a blessed life, of no problems, no trouble, and just receiving gifts from God all our lives? Is that how we're looking to live? Or are we looking for the presence of God in our lives? And sometimes to be willing to accept that when we have the presence of God in our lives, there will be discomfort. It will be sometimes confrontational to those around us. What are you looking for? What are you seeking for? It tells us if the world hates you, 
the scripture tells us, know that it has hated me. This is Jesus speaking. Before it hated you. Embrace this part of being part of his kingdom and you will experience the power of being an image of Jesus to those around you who need to see him, especially now in the midst of this pandemic. Finally, tell me, let me tell you a story about this guy. You know, a lot of people don't know who he is. A lot of people wonder why... People know the other person. People know Wilberforce, who was the politician who was able to change the slavery, um, the whole idea of slavery, and pass a, 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 a law in the, in the British courts to move that way. But the whole movement started with this man who actually was a lawyer that helped others defend their case. And one day, a guy ran into, a, 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 a young man who was a slave ran into his office and says, would you help me? Would you help me? And the guy, out of compassion, says, what happened? And the slave told him, well, sir, I want to be free. And he looked at this young man and he housed him for, for the period of time when he was with him. And from there he says, you know, I'm going to set you free. I'm going to set you free. And from then on, day by day, he will petition his case all around the town and strive to push for freedom for this guy. Then one day, his owner showed up. And when his owner showed up, he says, this man belongs to me. Give him back. And that's when he realized that everyone's supposed to be free. Everyone's supposed to make our own choice. And from his effort, it was what he gathered and everything he's done that allowed Wilberforce eventually to set everyone free. Uncomfortable. But when you really see who your brothers and sisters are, the people around you need Jesus, I think there's a time that you will strive to set people free by confronting the life that they live.